Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We are uh, four weeks into our uh, short series talking about servanthood and uh, also the idea of humility and how humility applies to servanthood. We'd probably be here for one more week, um, and then, Lord willing, uh, we'll go back to working through a book of the Bible, um, praying about the book of Ruth, um, considering the book of Ruth. Hopefully that'll take us up to uh, uh, Advent, and we'll do a short Advent series, and then, Lord willing, after the first of the year, we'll park ourselves in a book of, a, of the Bible for a long time, so uh, maybe at least the next half a year to a yearish or so, we'll see what book of the Bible we go to next. So uh, that'll probably be right after the first of the year. For now, we'll finish up this. We'll go probably to the Book of Ruth, and then Advent, and then park somewhere there, <clears throat> somewhere. Who knows? We have plenty to choose from, right? Let's beginning. Let's begin with chapter six. Uh, and verse 1, we'll read there in just a second. I want to summarize for us where we've been so far in this quick series on the idea of servanthood and humility. And We've, we've talked about this idea of servanthood and, and the idea of living to make others glad in Christ. Living, servanthood, and our call to live, to lead others, to see the glory and goodness of Jesus and be satisfied in Him and Him alone. And we must spend our time doing just that, serving others that they might know that they might know the glory and gladness of Christ. The problem, though, as we've talked about over the past few weeks, <clears throat> is that we most often want to live for our greatness or our convenience and however each one of us would define, a, define that. We, we've spent a lot of time talking about the ego. I think the ego is a helpful term when we think about pride. Because oftentimes when we think about the word pride, we think of that, well, that's just kind of this characteristic that I, d- I need to get away from. I need to not have pride. I need to move on. But the ego kind of more represents this uh, internal, like this the, the really sin nature, right? Original sin that is the flesh, it's lurking inside of us, and it must be put to death, and it is oftentimes given to the sin of pride. So I think the ego is a helpful term, but, but the ego drives us in the idea of servanthood as it relates to servanthood, is that we, over, we do the following things because of our ego. We overestimate self. We love being made much of ourselves. We think we're unique in our handling of sin, or, or we refuse to trust God, and we serve ourselves most often. We walk into even op- opportunities of servitude, thinking how and what can I get out of this? We serve ourselves, we want to give, but we want to give what we want to give. Again, as we, the, the ego is so intertwined in how we think and how we relate that, that even in acts of service, you can see its ugly snakehead weaving in and out of our thoughts and our motives and such. But the gospel commands and produces humility, humbleness. <clears throat> and again, just, just reviewing some, we 
taught a, a whole week on this a few weeks ago, but humility gives God the credit. Like humility is not just recognizes God as the good one and God is the sovereign one and God is the one who's brought these things about that are good for his glory and our good, but it's happy to give God the credit. And second, humility recognizes the gifts of God and God's graciousness in our lives. And humility acknowledges God's providence, his governance, his sovereignty, his his when we get into these, like, say, servitude, and, and you're going into an event, and it doesn't happen quite the way you want it to go, or things aren't lined up quite the way you want it to, but you recognize, humility recognizes that this is happening under God's sovereignty and His providence, and, and it's happy to acknowledge that, and is happy to rest and be at peace in God's providence. Pride, the ego, gets upset when things don't happen the way we want them to happen. Humility cherishes the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Humility, as you heard in the, the Piper quote, serves others. I can't see your heart, but I can see what your heart results in, what the actions of your heart. And humility looks necessarily like getting below others so that you can lift them up. Humility looks like service. Humility knows, as we talked a few weeks ago, it looks like Humility knows the greatness of Jesus. Right in the passage where he says, if you would be great, you must serve, right? You don't lord it over others, but you serve. So humility knows the greatness of God. We talked about how the way to greatness is to forsake searching for your greatness in order to search for His. To see Christ, Jesus, as the only great one. But the ego drives towards our greatness. It drives towards making much of ourselves. But if we would be great, we must serve others and see Christ's greatness in His servitude. The great one who laid down His life. Not just, I will die in your place, but I will take the price and the penalty for your sins, of which I had nothing to do with. I will take all of those. The, the ultimate act of servitude. I will die your very well-deserved death for you. He lays down his life in service for us. He is the great one. And so we are, again, to cease searching for our greatness because we have found the great one, and in response, we serve others. And we talked the last two weeks, two weeks ago, about how we serve the leper in Luke 5. And that we, we talked about how we will serve the leper who Jesus touched. Like we will serve the leper when we realize that we are indeed the leper who has been touched. Right? We talked about how leprosy in the scriptures represents the idea of original sin. And how God, for those of us who have been rescued by his touch. We are the leper whom Jesus reached out and touched. And when we realize that that's the reality, that we are not who we are by our own doing, but by the grace of God, then we will reach out and touch the leper ourselves. Then we talked the second week, Luke 7, about how we were called to love the prostitute. Even the idea of loving her in her sin. Right? And the, the, the metaphor that that, uh, the, that that represents. right? But loving 
people in their sin, loving them through their sin. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't ignoring the prostitute's sin, right? Remember, he says to her, your sins are great, and I've forgiven you. But what's he say? Her love for the Father is in response to his forgiveness of her sins. Jesus saw through her sin. He didn't justify her sin. He didn't make light of her sin. He didn't do any of those things like we try to do. No, he acknowledged her sin, but he loved her knowing who she was, not just how she was. We're called to do the same thing. We're called to love people because of who they are, not how they are. We will love more as we understand how much we have sinned against God and how much He has forgiven us for. So this is what we've talked about the past few weeks. Just wanted to catch us up here. This is hard. Like We're to serve in these ways. We're to be humble in this way. We're to do it. And this week we're going to talk about some help that God has given us to serve. Oh, certainly we have in, in the church and in this church we have elders. Elders who are supposed to be servant leaders as we've talked about before. Who are called and empowered by the grace of God to, Lord willing, to model servitude for us. But God has also been gracious in giving us something more. Now in this passage in Acts 6, I don't think that these are technically deacons in Acts 6, but I think this passage gives us kind of the beginning of what deacon, uh, the office of deacon, what the office of uh, the diaconate, what it looks like. And I think God has been gracious to give us the office of deacon, as a blessing to his church. To show us, to model for us, to encourage us, to equip us, to to move us forward in the idea of servanthood and the humility that undergirds servanthood. We have deacons who, as we would think about calling them such things as leading servants. The question is, what is a deacon? I know, I'm sure if you've been around church for very long at all, you've heard lots of sermons about deacons, okay? And some of it's probably been great, some of it's probably been terrible, and we just get to talk about it one more time. I, I was even telling someone before service, I said, you know, I, it's like the fourth or fifth time I've preached on this passage, probably the third or fourth time here uh, in almost nine years now. Uh, and so it was like, oh my, like, oh, all right, so I kind of felt what maybe some of you feel right now. I'm like, i got to preach this again. <sighs> what I'm going to say that I've not said before is, is and, right? And anytime you're like, okay, i got something fresh to say, you're like, okay, but is it from the Bible, right? Uh, like, we, we believe we should be tethered to the Scriptures and say what the Scriptures say and not make up our own, even though it might be right or whatever, but it needs to be focused and come from the passage and Here's a, a, a definition, I think, beyond, it's kind of from beyond this passage, but at least tied to the New Testament, kind of a working definition of the idea of deacon. You can write this down, it's pretty lengthy, but those chosen, brought about, if you will, or brought to the surface by the body, affirmed by the elders, 
to be leading and exemplary servants in the body of Christ for specific tasks during specific seasons so the elders can concentrate on the word and prayer. I'll read that for you again. Those chosen or, or, or brought to the surface by the body and affirmed by the elders to be leading and exemplary servants in the body of Christ for, for specific tasks during specific seasons so the elders can concentrate on the word and prayer. I mean, certainly so that the body can serve more effectively, so the body can be cared for, so that needs can be met. I mean, all those things too. I'm assuming those. That's kind of a, a working definition. You would say this if you've been around here for a while. You say, well, don't we have leading servants? Don't we have, it's even, that's what our website says. We have leading servants or servant leaders or something, something like that. We have leading servants, I think is what it says. Why deacons then? Why do we need deacons? Well, the, the reality is, is that some of those leading servants should be deacons. Uh, are qualified to be deacons or should be recognized as, be de- as deacons. And by God's grace, some of them in the near future will be. But deacons are people who have not just assumed a role, but have been set apart. Have been set apart to model and orchestrate servanthood. To model in an exemplary fashion. Now certainly servant leaders, as as we've seen them in our church, that that is uh, part of what they do too. But this is, in a sense, an office. It's a a place where we, we... Together as the body say, these people we want to look to to lead us in these tasks. Again, these church, the church should look to these people to lead them in humble servanthood. That they'd be recognized as a gift given by God. In many ways, like an elder is a gift given by God to the body. If I, if I could just... If, confess for for whatever reason good and bad I'm not quite sure but we were probably like three or four years overdue on having deacons Um, we've been concentrated very hard Rusty and I have on on raising up another elder and of which we affirmed last year this time right August of last year with Greg Pastor Greg and so we're thankful for that it's kind of where our concentration has been and but we are ready and, and need, and, and this will be a good thing for us, hopefully over this, this year, for us to find and affirm official deacons in our body. These people must look, these deacons must look for the needs of the church to meet the needs of the church. And as we'll see, under the direction of the elders, and should seek to fulfill these needs. And these men and women will be held to an even higher measure of accountability than leading and service in other ways. So as we read this passage, again, I don't believe these are officially deacons yet, but, but what we have is the beginning of the model. It, this passage at least shows us what deacons do. It at least begins that conversation for us. Acts 6, verse 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa, right? And Parmenas, and Nicolaus, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Father, I pray that we would learn well, that we would grow in another degree of glory for your purposes and for our good. And Father, I pray that you would just bless our desires here, a desire for a diaconate in this church. Father, let this be more than just a, a formal thing that we just got to talk about, but let it be something that enriches our hearts and our souls so that we might glorify you even further in our walk this week. Well, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. First thing I want you to see as we look at this passage is we must serve. We must serve. That's obviously true just on the passages that we've looked at over the past three weeks, but it's true once again. We must serve. Servitude is a result of humility, and humility is a result of the gospel's work in our life. We must serve. Oh, look, in this passage, look at the apostles and elders. Their, their life is a life of servitude. The apostles slash elders, they are serving. They serve in large part by meeting spiritual needs, giving prayer preaching the Word, teaching the Word, exemplifying the Word. And all of us are now servants, right? If we are in Christ, we are now servants. It's who we are. We serve the person that's inconvenient. Or we serve the person that might get us dirty like the leper. We lead our families to get over themselves, to lower themselves, to serve others. We must serve. Service is part of the point of this passage, is that servitude within the body of Christ is necessary. It's important. It has value. But what we're looking at today, I want us to see two things. I want you to look at the birthing of a new leadership role in the church. The very beginnings of this reality. I, I want to also say this. Be careful if you're like, okay, well, I don't, I'm never going to be a deacon, right? And then the, the risk would be that you would check out, right? I, okay, well, this is for that. Well, you at least need to stay checked in for the fact that a deacon should be a very big and important part of your life. So what are you looking for and what is important 
in this idea of a, a deacon. But then also, because the reality is, is that just as an elder is here and the qualifications for an elder and such, as we've looked at as a church, that, that's not just for an elder, it's for all of us to aspire to. The same thing here is true on the deacon side, that the qualifications, that the responsibilities of a deacon, that those are things that we're all to aspire toward. And I hope you'll see that particularly as we go today. But you look and you see the birthing of a new leadership role. In this scenario, listen, I'm sure the elders wanted to care for the widows. There's no indication that, well, we just, you know, I just, I don't want to do that job, right? That's a deacon's job. That's beneath me. Uh, that's, that's, I don't think that's the picture we got. I'm sure that the elders had to care for the widows, but they had a priority elsewhere, not just their preference. It wasn't just their preference to do something else. They have a priority to do something else. Now here's something I don't want you to miss as we dive right into this passage. Is that the people were already serving. This is crucial and you're going to hear this theme pop back up at least two more times this morning. But the reality is, is that the people were already serving. It wasn't, we need a task done, so let's go choose people to get the task done. Service was already happening. Servitude was already taking place. Some of the widows were being taken care of. Some of the widows were already being cared for. They already had at least to some measure, a heart of servitude within this very early church. The problem was this. They were not doing it well. The servitude was there, but they were not doing it well for whatever reason. We can, we'll talk a little bit about those later, but for whatever reason, they were not doing it well. And so the elders decide that they need other people in the church to lead the people to do it well, to organize it, to administrate it, to lead their servitude to greater effectiveness and greater appropriateness. There were certain people, again, for whatever reason, were being neglected. The others, the other widows, were being served. People were being served. It's often in, in many of the churches that I've been a part of that it is that you can't get the people to do anything, so you've got to get someone, so you go choose a deacon or an elder to go get the job done, and, and that's what happens. That, that's not what's happening here. They were already serving. There was a culture of servitude. For whatever reason, it was not quite the way it should be. And so it's out of this culture, it's out of this culture of servitudes that deacons lead in meeting needs. That's our earliest picture. Deacons lead in meeting needs. That idea also is the most specific usage of the word for deacon in the New Testament. That there are meeting specific needs. And that's what we see happening here in Acts 6. So what's happening, a little bit of background here, is the Jewish system had a system for taking care of the widows. The problem was that you had a lot of Greek-speaking widows that were being overlooked. And out of this was starting to arise some dissension. 
some disunity. Neglect was a part of this picture. So these seven guys are chosen to focus on meeting this particular need. And you say, okay, well, looking around at our church, what, what kind of needs do we have in our church? What, what is like a, a modern-day example of this in our church? We just care for things such as, you say, well, we don't own a building, so how do we care for a facility? How do we care for, like, the needs that, that are part of it? Well, this setting up and tearing down, if you're not a part of the roadie crew, go join the roadie crew. You can set up. That's just our funny name for how we've, we've called them for nine years now. Go talk to Brian. Brian leads in that area. Care for our children. Counseling ministry. I don't know if you know this, but your pastors do lots of counseling. Having deacons who can be a part of that and having other people serve be a part of that. Like Our desire is that eventually we have lots of people who are trained to biblically counsel other people in our church and that in many ways they counsel first, and then when they need help, then the elders can step in and help. Like, not that we'd, I mean, I love, love counseling. Absolutely love it. It's one of, my, one of my top two favorite things that I get to do, but equipping other people to do it and to serve in this way would be important. Caring for things such as finances. Do you understand how much like, paperwork and junk that that takes? Like right now, Kirsten, I, don't, she, I, I didn't tell her I was going to point her out, but Kirsten takes care of 99% of all of that. Like, it's, it's just a pain. But it's important. Like, in order for us to be faithful, particularly to Caesar and such, we have to do that. Hospital visits. Oh, but that's the pastor's job. Is it? It's not that it's not his part of his job or not part of their jobs, but... Like, it can be. Also, the idea of caring for the needy and broken among us. People who are maybe in financial struggle. Or leading our church to be merciful even to those broken outside of our church. Like, these are things that, that we're doing measures of as a church. But it'd be helpful for us to have deacons in certain areas that would help us to greater effectiveness and greater appropriateness when it comes to caring for the brokenness and the things around us that need cared for. Again, these are all examples of important facets of ministry there are things that the elders must oversee and ensure that they happen, but, but they are things that are important for the body to be doing by and large. Deacons are simply there again to lead in doing these things. Now let me talk to the, the body at large here. This doesn't mean that we sit around and wait for a deacon to take care of something within this community. Now it's been easy to, to, to kind of stay away from that because we don't have deacons. Well, that's deacon so-and-so's job and that's deacon so-and-so's job and they'll take care of that and if they need me to help, they'll come ask and blah, 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 blah. No, 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 that's not, again, they're serving. They're just not doing it effectively. We do it. Our calling, the results of the humility 
that God is bringing about in us results in servitude. We're to have our eyes open to the needs of those around us, and we go do it. But again, what is our struggle? I think we have two fund- like very basic struggles. One's a spiritual one, one's a practical struggle. First of all, the, the practical struggle to go find needs and to meet them in the body is, first of all, the fight with our ego. The desire to make ourselves look great, to serve ourselves, and so on and so forth. So we spend much of our time looking not to meet the needs of others through servitude, but actually to serve ourselves. To meet our perceived needs, whether legit or not. But then on the practical side, not all of us are gifted or able to devote the time necessary to ensure the effectiveness of an area of service. And that's a legit reality. Some of us are in different seasons of life or have different responsibilities. And so we can't all give time and energy to thinking about the effectiveness, the administration, the, the, the steps to do that. And God has given that to certain people and called them to do that. But it's not us sitting around waiting for them to do those things. It's, it's us going and doing what we can. And then as God brings someone to the surface that can orchestrate things in a much better way, then we get behind them and we push and we move and we work. I don't know if you've thought about the idea of deacons this way. But look at verse, chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Put, take this passage and put it alongside the passage we first started with in this series about the idea of if one would be great, you must serve others, right? And Jesus came and laid his life down. Listen, deacons push against the flow of our own search for our own greatness. So so if I'm going to forsake searching for my greatness, and I'm going to search for His, and this looks like servitude, so that the walk of repentance looks like lowering myself to raise others up, serving other people, and deacons come along, and what are they to do? They're to help orchestrate and encourage that. So what are they doing? They're helping to orchestrate and encourage the forsaking of our own greatness in order to serve others because we have been served by the great one, Jesus Christ. Deacons, one of their most fundamental roles is not just to take care of this physical need, but to help us walk in repentance of our own search for greatness within ourselves. And someone full of the Spirit is not someone full of the ego. These are antithetical. They lead people, deacons lead people to walk in repentance and faith concerning this area of our lives, of which we all need help. The very task is to help people walk away from this search for our own greatness in exchange for the true greatness found in Christ in the service of others. So I want to help us watch that we don't just relegate a deacon who's meeting a practical need. He is or she is a deacon or deaconess meeting a practical need, but that act of meeting this practical need is us walking in repentance concerning the service of ourselves for the service of others. 
a deacon must be exemplary in the laying down of their greatness. That's what we get to. There are qualifications for deacons. They must be exemplary in the area of laying down their lives, in every area of life, at their workplace. They mu- there must be evidence of them laying down the search for their own greatness apart from Christ. At home, there must be evidence of them laying down the search for their own greatness. At school, or wherever else we find us, find a person, there must be evidence of them laying down the search for their greatness. The next thing I want you to see is, as we think about deacons lead in meeting needs, they also meet needs that arise from specific circumstances. They meet needs that arise from specific circumstances. You hear the kids singing? That's precious. I don't know whose voice that is. Whose voice is that? Do you know whose voice that is singing? Oh, maybe we shouldn't embarrass them. They're going to hear me talking on the, on the recording about them. I love it. They meet needs that arise from specific circumstances. Some of you have seen the office of deacon done in such a way that it's kind of a continuing office that someone holds. I, I don't want to say that that's wrong. I just don't think that's what we have modeled. Like, this is what I saw in many places growing up. You have a group of deacons, and no one really knew what the deacons did. We just knew they had a meeting once a month, and they gave the pastor a hard time. They were the one to run the pastor off when he did something they didn't like. I mean, that was, that was what I saw modeled in most of the churches I grew up in. I remember catching one deacon smoking out behind a truck one time. And the, oh, we can't smoke, you know, that's not what we're supposed to do. Listen, I, listen I, I'm, I'm probably being unfair. Sorry for being unfair. But you have this body of deacons. What do they do? They're just in this office of deacon. What do they do? I, I don't think, I don't, personally, I don't think this makes any sense. And it's not what we have modeled for us in the scripture. But it's also not how you approach servanthood in general, let's think about just the fundamental idea of servanthood. So you're a servant, right? If I was to come to you and say, so you're a servant, right? You say, yes. I say, well, where are you serving? You say, well, you know, I'm just available to be a servant, right? Well, then you're, you're not a servant if you're not serving. So if you're a deacon, where are you serving? What are you serving for what are you serving to? What's what are we working at? It's the same thing. Like I would say, the same thing is true of pastors, right? There's there sometimes there's positions like administrative pastors, and, and they they take care of a lot of the business side of the church. Listen, if that I'm not saying I've seen this before, but if that pastor is not teaching the word, if he's not counseling people and teaching, discipling people, or doing something, some measure of that, then he's not a pastor. He's an administrative director, and that's fine. That's a fine title, but he's not a pastor. There's things that pastors do. You can't just put the term pastor onto anything and call them a pastor. 
Now, it's fine if they're discipling people and leading people and also taking care of the business side of the church. That's fine. It sounds more to me like a deacon's role so that the pastor can do the pastor's role. But a, a deacon is not an office that you just hold in perpetuity because you have a title. What do you serve? You serve towards specific situations. They had a situation where the widows needed better care. There were a certain group of people who were being neglected in a life and death situation. I mean, you understand that, right? This is not just a preference that someone wanted this to happen or wanted this ministry to take place. It was a life and death situation for these widows. That was the circumstance. And the deacons would lead the charge that was already happening in caring for them. I think one of the implications of this is that this means that the diaconate will take different shapes and forms as seasons change. As a church changes, the deacons, the shape of the diaconate and the purpose of each person and what they're serving is going to change. So no person should get attached to the circumstances of serving. I mean, that's true of all of us, right? If we're serving for the good of others and not for ourselves then when that service ends, we can walk away with glad hearts. So the same thing is true with deacons. So as we think about choosing deacons from our church, we have to think, is this someone who's going to get attached to their position of servitude as though their servitude is ultimately for themselves? I wrote this. The moment you would get offended or hurt if someone took away your place of service is the moment you have stopped serving others and have started seeking your greatness in your servitude. At least what you're calling servitude. At that point, it becomes nothing more than an employment opportunity. I work in this way so I can get my payment of my own satisfaction. And so we think about deacons. Deacons cannot be that. Their servitude is not attached to the circumstance of their service. It's attached to the past circumstance in which Jesus died for their salvation. That's what their service is attached to. For that is what all of our service must be attached to. I serve because the Lord has served me. Deacons. Lead in this. Model this. Again, so future deacons and and church, listen, as we look to affirm future deacons, this must be someone who fights against his or her own greatness in order to serve others and holds loosely to the opportunity of service of which they come across. We have to keep that the forefront of our minds. This must be a person who's doing this already. You understand that Teaching and helping someone develop the skill of dying to themselves doesn't really work. That is something that comes from repentance and faith. And the Lord is to mightily work against the grain of our own flesh for us to be someone who fights against the search for our own greatness in order to serve others. So the first thing is that we must serve. Second, we must strive for unity in the body. We must strive for unity in the body.
Again, verse 1, And now in these days the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We'll be here pretty briefly, but disunity often arises out of change and growth. There's growth and change taking place. Disunity often happens. I mean, disunity is, is the natural trajectory of the human flesh anyways. Change just kind of speeds up the process. Unmet needs always occur with change. Not only are the Greek widows upset, but there's also disunity, right? There's complaints. There's, there's, there's this isn't happening and if they're anything like us, then I'm sure they're making speculations about why this is happening, and they're making assumptions about what should change in order to make this happen, and, and they're taking offense at this, and, and why it's not happening, and I can imagine. I mean, good thing they didn't have Facebook, or Twitter. So what's happening is there's a minority group in the body of Christ and for whatever reason, whether purposefully or out of ignorance, they're not being cared for. They're not being cared for. One group is not loving their neighbors. One ethnicity is not loving well the other. Again, it might not be out of clear harmful intent, but nevertheless, they're not loving well. And so there arises this disunity. When the deacons meet these needs, what are they functionally doing? Leading and unifying the church. Leading and unifying the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, as we grow as a church, there will be growing pains. There, will, there have been growing pains, my goodness. There will be more. More needs for deacons. More needs for us to serve. More needs. We're broken people who are needy people with an all-sufficient God who has given us the grace of the local body to help us in our journey. But I want you to notice something beautiful in this picture at this point as we're talking about this disunity. Notice, and the, and the unifying effect of the deacons. Notice something beautiful in this passage. The Greek widows express the issue and then they're patient in seeing the situation resolved. I mean, we don't know how long they waited. I don't know if this happened overnight. I mean, clearly they're being neglected in the daily distribution of food. But they're patient in resolving the issue. They express the issue. They don't just get up and head down to the church down the road. They, they wait, they wait for their, and then on the flip side of this, the Hebrews, under the direction of the elders, seek to care for them. They move quickly to resolve the situation. Two incredibly beautiful things. Now again, let's be clear, this was a legit life or death issue. Not just someone's preference. It's a life or death issue. It wasn't something driven by consumerism and perceived needs. This was life or death. They expressed it. They were patient. The Hebrews met the need. The Greek widows and the Hebrew Christians were quick to reconcile. 
he, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Greg, Pastor Greg read this earlier. There are therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So at least part of the function of deacons, again, we have to think beyond just simply physical people meeting physical needs. Deacons are also peacemakers. Deacons should be peacemakers. Not peace fakers. Still that phrase from a pastor friend of mine. Peace fakers are those people who can get together and have a good time when they know that there is an issue that dreadfully needs to be dealt with. Deacons seek unity. They don't ignore the sin of other people or ignore the foolishness. Now certainly there's a time to address certain things and all of that, but deacons seek unity. This should be one of the one of the strongest unifying forces in the body of Christ. Bringing people together to walk away from their own egos to serve the goodness of somebody else. Do you think that has more application than just serving a table? Absolutely. When you have a force of people leading a whole group of people to walk away from their egos, what do you think that will do for the body of Christ? It's going to do more than just take care of the rather important, but it's going to do more than just take care of the empty stomachs of some broken people, as important as that is. Deacons lead towards peace. Certainly under the direction and oversight of the elders and so on and so forth, but when, the, when they protect the unity in the church, through practical need meeting and confronting the sin, they help provide a rich seedbed for the teaching of God's Word. So the third thing I want us to see is that we must protect the ministry of the Word. We protect unity. Deacons are here to help protect unity. We must protect the ministry of the Word. The apostles... Saw, or the elders, if you will, saw the importance and sought to meet the need. They, they weren't dis, disregarding the concern here. They sought to meet the need. Again, remember, it's a life or death need. Not someone's preference. But they recognized the elders had the wisdom and the biblical knowledge and understanding to recognize a primary importance for them and the body was the ministry of the word and their communing with God. You see, the ministry of the word, just like food was life and death for the widows, the elders understood that the ministry of the word and their communing with God was life and death for the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word. We teach the Word. He is our bread and our life. 
So what do deacons do? Deacons lead you to serve so that the elders can lead in the ministry of the word. Deacons help protect the elders so that they can give themselves to the ministry of the word. Deacons lead the body to care for the needs of the church so that the elders can devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. What is the ministry of the Word? Well, it's largely the proclamation of the Word. Of course, you're like, okay, well then what's the proclamation of the Word? To teach and preach who Jesus is according to the Scriptures. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. To study it and teach it. But I don't think it's just limited to public teaching in a setting like this. Formal counseling, casual gospel conversations before and after house gathering or small groups. Every few months I get together with all of our DNA leaders, all of our one-on-two discipleship group leaders, and, and we get to have a time where I get to speak the gospel to them, to teach them the gospel, and they get a time to help each other see the gospel, to do the ministry of the word. Cases of church discipline. Those are, should be, must be, opportunities where the ministry of the Word is primary. Responding to current cultural and social issues should be, can be, as a part of the ministry of the Word. Leading in worship, as Pastor Greg does. It's a ministry of the Word. And then, and prayer. So devote time to ministry of the word and prayer. It's just, I think it's more than just them saying formal prayers or having a formal prayer time, but actually communing with God. I mean, that's the idea of biblical prayer anyways, is communing with the Lord. And the elders must have time to dedicate to communing with the Lord. I don't know if you realize this, but I I think the elders figured this out, or the apostles had this figured out, that the ministry is pretty hard. That it takes a lot of concerted effort to stay healthy, to stay full of joy, to keep our eyes on Christ and be rejuvenated in order to serve the body. And they recognize this. Even when no one else recognized this, the elders had a healthy understanding of what needed to happen, not just for their own good, but for their own good as it relates to the good of the body. And I'm thankful that, that they didn't just let this go by, that the elders didn't just go, well, you know what, I can't speak up for what we need. We're just going to keep on doing this, and hopefully someone picks up on the obvious. But they recognized, they had to step out and go, you know what, it's not about us. It's about what the body needs. So let us lead the body to care for itself by freeing us up to pray and preach the word. So deacons lead others in order to protect the ministry of the word for the good of the body and obviously for God's glory. Deacons lead others so that they can serve. Like deacons lead, again, in the administration of servitude. At this point, there's thousands of people in the church. They raise up seven guys for the task. To lead the congregation to continue in this servitude. 
We're all servants in this church. Deacons lead us to do this. Deacons come along and say, hey church, you know the word that the elders have been teaching us? Let's go live it. Let's go do it. Let's go walk in repentance and faith according to it. You see, deacons may lead. This is where I want us to land today. Deacons may lead in servitude, but the congregation has to have its eyes fixed on servitude. Deacons may lead in it, but the congregation must be a culture of servitude. Let me read to you a quote from the book called Compelling Community by Mark Dever. Most commentators I've read note that the names of the seven men of verse 5 are all Hellenistic. And a congregation that was probably majority Hebrew, that's striking. Through the work of God's Spirit, the congregation didn't content themselves with simply meeting the bar the apostles had set for them. They bent over backwards to care for their Hellenist sisters. In a climate of mistrust and suspicion, they risked entrusting their own widows to this unfamiliar cultural group. Not surprisingly, we read in verse 7 that the Word of God continued to increase. And that's a great many became obedient to the faith. A congregation, here's what's happening. A congregation that's made up of two distinct ethnic groups. The Hellenists and the Hebrews. But primarily Hebrews. The seven men that were chosen by the congregation and presented to the apostles, though, were not from the majority group. They were from the minority group. They were from the Hellenists. Listen to this. The Hebrew congregation, the majority congregation, was willing to submit the care of their own widows, even, to the care of of a culture of people that they didn't know very well or understand very well. Listen, they saw the value in unity. They knew the importance of unity, the importance of laying their lives down to care for others. So again, not only are the Hebrews willing to entrust their widows to the care of the Hellenists, but also the Hellenists are willing to care for the Hebrew widows who had been given the higher privilege to this point. See that both ways here. The Hebrews saying, you know, we're going to entrust ours to them. And then these people whose widows were neglected, cared for the widows of the ones who had neglected them. I mean, do you see how much they gave up? Both. As we think about our servitude, does serving always have to be on our time schedule, on your time schedule? 
Does serving always have to look your way? Have the right outcome the way you're looking for? Does a certain response have to be reciprocated toward your servitude? Let me ask you this question. Does your servitude require a great sacrifice? Does your servant, does the ways in which you serve require great sacrifice? How, how often do you serve in ways that you simply don't want to? Here's the danger. If all you do is serve in ways that are convenient, how do you know you're not serving yourself? That doesn't mean like you necessarily are. But it's in those times where we're serving in a way that we don't want to. Like, I don't like doing this task. It's in those times where we can go, you know, why am I serving? I'm serving for God's glory and the good of this person because I've been served by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it wasn't just the elders who were serving, and a few of the congregation. It wasn't even just the deacons. The deacons were birthed out of a culture of servitude. The deacons didn't need to get the people all geared up to serve. The deacons were chosen to simply orchestrate the servitude to make it more effective and more appropriate. And the culture of servitude didn't come out of nowhere. The culture of servitude came because the word was being proclaimed and the elders understood this. That's why they made primary this role. That's why they protected it. The gospel was being explained and the people were believing it. The elders believed that their priority was to proclaim the gospel. No wonder it says in Acts 6-7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice that last phrase, and many priests became obedient to the faith. Why, why, does, why does Luke put this in here? Why does Luke put this phrase, verse 7, after verses 1-6? through six? To show us God's approval. To show us the goodness of what was happening. And many priests, not, not just many people, but many priests that become, became obedient to the faith. Now even priests who had been so hostile to the church are responding to the word of God and obeying the faith. Why? Look at the picture. Two very different ethnicities coming together, both laying their lives down for the good of each other. That's possible. When both groups realize they were both equally condemnable before God, And both had to step front on level ground before the same cross. And both were served the same gospel. So here's what happens. The church had been tested in these circumstances. Would they crucify their egos in order to care for the needy in their midst? 
Would they listen to the hurting in their midst? Would they give up their preferences for the body of Christ? Would they give up their time? Would they give up their comfort? And then two, would they protect the word and the ministry of the word in their midst? Would the church protect it? Would the church protect the unity of the church? Would they protect the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word? Would they protect it? Would the church do such a thing? Not simply would the elders maintain the importance of preaching of the word, but would the congregation value the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word? Would the congregation say, yes, we know the importance of hearing the scriptures. Let us serve in such a way to protect our elders and their time to commune with God and teach us the word. And here's Luke's point. The church passed the test. The church passed the test. By God's grace, they passed the test. And the word went forward with even more intensity and power and vigor, even such that those who persecuted the church were now becoming obedient to faith. Listen. Church, if we will look to the glories, the greatness of our Lord, seeing our sinfulness and His great forgiveness that was bought for us on the cross and worship Him alone, we will have a culture of service and hospitality, of unity and care and love. And God will multiply us greatly. Doesn't mean a thousand people next week, right? We, we know how that goes. But God will bless those efforts. God will bless those efforts. He does the unity of his people, the preaching of his word. These are things that God cares very deeply about. So as we think about deacons, as we think about servitude in the church, let us be reminded that we can serve because we were served by God who sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and yours. And if we would walk in repentance and faith, believing that He has done that, that He died for me, then we'll serve. Why? Because our humility is bolstered, our ego is crushed. And here we're able to, because we've been exalted with Christ, we can lower ourselves so we can get under others in order to lift them up and serve them. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, I pray that your word was, I'm sure your word was helpful to your people. I just pray that hearts that were open to hear it. Father, I pray that anything that I said that's, not helpful, and certainly anything that I've said that's not 
accurately representative, representing your word, that it would be burned from our minds, that it would be erased, that our eyes would be fixed on the greatness of your son Jesus, his sacrifice for our sins on the cross for us, and that we would see the servitude exemplified for us in this passage And that we, in our servitude and in our desire to serve each other, would desire the goodness of the office of deacon. That we would desire to see people raised up from among us who who lead well in this way. Not so that they can get the job done, but so that we can have more encouragement. So that we can have more help in walking in repentance and faith concerning the forsaking of our greatness. Search for it in order to search for the greatness of your son Jesus as we see it displayed in the cross of Christ on our behalf. Father, may you crush our pride, our egos, bolster and firm up and build up our humility that we can go low in the service of others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.